This is Guns and Butter. as fast as possible, in a matter of months, or by the end of this year for sure, uh, this monetary system, by building a new one, which will enable the major stakeholders which have emerged in the past 10, 15, 20 years worldwide, together with the US, to set up a new currency, international reserve currency, to take the place of the US dollar, because we are at a time where we can't lose any occasion if we can, uh, we can help to get the leaders make the right choices. Because as said before, if we fail to do that collectively, uh, worldwide, not only the leaders, but those who can influence them, then the planet is really going to go into a very, very bad course for the next decade. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Frank Biancari. Today's show, The World at Crossroads. Frank Biancari is Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Each month, the bulletin brings its unique analysis of the upcoming stages of the collapse of the world order created after 1945, as well as numerous strategic recommendations for decisions in the political, economic, and financial fields. Mr. Biancari is also Director of Research at Leap Europe 2020, the European Laboratory of Political Anticipation, and President of New Europeans, the first trans-European political movement. Europe 2020 is dedicated to anticipating European political developments and was developed in partnership with many different organizations, including research centers and individual researchers. The Europe 2020 website provides support to innovative initiatives aimed at upgrading the European Union's capacity to face 21st century challenges. Today we discuss the latest bulletin, which includes a description of Phase 5 of the global systemic crisis, the phase of global geopolitical dislocation, as well as three strategic recommendations that attempt to divert the system from this long and tragic crisis. Frank Biancari, welcome again. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be once again with you. Oh, yes. For the latest, uh, for the last three years, the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin has produced highly accurate forecasts of the development of a crisis with which the world is now struggling. The latest edition of the bulletin, March 2009, describes two ways forward that remain open until the summer of 2009. Many times your researchers come up with a timeline of, of uh, six months from now, that is, until summer of 2009, a critical short six months left for world leaders to deal effectively with a global crisis of historic proportions. What do you see occurring in six months that will render other options irreversible? Well, essentially, uh, in this last issue, we are, we are defining more precisely trends which we have been already uh, seeing and, and, and foreseeing and anticipating for, for the past uh, six months to one year. And uh, if I may summarize simply what we do believe is that uh, in the next six months, so during summer, somewhere between the beginning and the end of summer 2009, uh, if uh, no major decisions to, to change the course of the international monetary system, we do believe that this system, international monetary system, will collapse somehow during summer. And 
the this monetary system is the core, the core component of the economic and financial uh, and let's say even diplomatic or strategic system which has been running this planet for the past uh, 50, 60 years. So uh, in uh, in any case, if it collapses, as we think, it will mean that we are going to see a complete disruption of the international relations the way we have known them for the past decades. Your research indicates that the G20, that is the, the group of uh, 20 nations, is now facing the choice between a three- to five-year crisis or alternatively, at the very least, a decade-long crisis. What is going to make the difference? In other words, well, let's start with a three- to five-year crisis, a shorter-term crisis. What would that look like, according to your research? First, if I may, I want to to, to add that one thing is very important in these two options we we are presenting, is that there is a third one which is not on the agenda. I mean, by that, there is, in our opinion, there is no way we can solve the crisis in a matter of months or a year or so, uh, which, as you know, is exactly what the G20 leaders are pretending they will do when they meet in April. Uh, so we think that what they pretend they will do is already out of question, is out of the agenda now. So we, in the differences between the, the two scenarios, and if we take the, the, the short one, as you say, uh, we think that if they do act in a way that they rebuild uh, the international monetary system, essentially by putting and setting up a new reserve, international reserve currency, and replacing the dollar, something built of uh, the major existing currencies, dollar, yen, euro, uh, yuan, and, and so on, uh, they will trigger... Uh, a dynamics which will bring all the major economic and political power in this world uh, into a new direction where they will share a common goal of building and setting up this new system. And if they do so, in a matter of months or let's say in a matter of semesters, we'll see that suddenly uh, public opinions, uh, major stakeholders in the field of finance or economy and so on, will definitely see that something is happening. Uh, something new, something which is not an attempt to indefinitely revive uh, a dying system or a broken engine like what, what they are doing right now. It is therefore something which will enable the leaders to uh, reinstillate confidence among people, about, among economic actors, among the financial system, because they will show that they lead, they build something new, they just don't run after the crisis. The second element is that with this confidence back and the fact that it brings the, the, the major stakeholders in this planet together to bring something on a long-term perspective and not trying to fix on short-term the issues as they do now, it will not suppress in a matter of two, three, four years the rise of unemployment, uh, the banking uh, weaknesses, uh, and so on and so on, but it will start the trend which in a matter of two, three, four years will progressively, region by region, some will be longer, others faster to recover, will start a recovery of all the major uh, fields, unemployment, uh, international trade, uh, and so on and so on. If they don't do that, if they don't uh, dare to put the basis of a new international monetary system between April and summer, then we are going to see all the negative trends we are noticing for the past uh, one year and a half or two years going deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, why? Because they will not bring any solution trying to 
prevent this trend to develop because they will not address the core issues. They will just keep on pouring money in a black hole, whether it's the banks, whether it's uh, uh, companies which are almost bankrupt and whose products are not sold or cannot be sold anymore, like, for instance, the auto industry in the U.S. They will keep on pretending that the financial system can be fixed when it is uh, almost in a complete uh, destruction situation. Uh, and public opinion will not buy that. Not buying it will mean there will be no confidence back. No confidence back. There will be no way to restore consumption, no way to, to restore global trade, and so on and so on. And we are going to see all the major stakeholders deciding by summer 2009 or fall 2009 that from now on, it's everybody for himself. And that there is no way there is a common solution to be found. And there will be uh, uh, the Asians uh, trying to find an Asian solution, the European, the European solution, the U.S., the U.S. solution, and so on and so on. And the world will therefore be, be pushed into a very long, at least 10, year, 10 years, uh, process of growing dislocation, uh, internationally speaking, but also affecting the biggest countries like the U.S., like uh, China, like Russia, like the EU, uh, because these tensions will affect directly the major or largest population-wise or economic-wise players. And uh, we take this example. We say the world will look like in 2014, in four or five years from now, uh, very similar to what Europe used to be 100 years ago in 1914. And we know what has come after 1914 in world wars and crises and depressions and, and so on and so on. Well, it sounds like you're describing your new phase five. The last time that we spoke, you spoke uh, at length about uh, phase four, of course, which is the breakdown of the global international monetary system due perhaps somewhere around uh, summer 2009. And now it sounds like uh, you're beginning to talk about your new phase five, which would be a very extended uh, a slump. And before we go into more um, detail about that, because I want to talk to you about that scenario in some detail, I wanted to ask you about what's going on presently. You draw a very sharp distinction between liquidity and insolvency and say that the American and British banking systems are insolvent. Would you say that Barack Obama's financial team, Secretary of the Treasury uh, Timothy Geithner, Lawrence Summers, Paul Volcker, are trying to prop up a system that has already collapsed and that their efforts are futile and really amount to making the crisis much worse? Is that what's going on? Yes. Very simply, yes. Geithner, Summers, and so on, I mean, and there's this we analyzed that in one hour bulletin months ago, uh, as soon as the economic team was uh, being drafted after Barack Obama's election. Uh, they are, they are the, the siblings, uh, the brothers of the previous economic team of uh, George W. Bush uh, presidency. Uh, this is Wall Street trying to rescue Wall Street. The fact that they are Democrat or Republican doesn't make uh, <laughs> a major difference. I mean, uh, they are pouring public money into a private black hole. And we, we have seen that all those TARP or whatever the names are given by the Fed or by the Treasury, those, those hundreds of billions or now trillions uh, programs, in fact, are one after the other uh, failing. 
And the question is not to increase the amount of money which is put inside a black hole. When the system is insolvent, when the financial system doesn't exist, in fact, anymore, only the names exist, only the, the, the people still working inside exist, but in fact, money doesn't flow anymore through it, it's absolutely uh, useless. To, to, in fact, it, it's even counterproductive to throw more and more money in it. And this is a very good example in the U.S. case or in the U.K. case, which is very similar, of what the G20 uh, may be tempted to do once more. Because, in fact, uh, the, the American leaders, like the British leaders or the G20 leaders, seem to ignore a very simple fact. Uh, when an engine is broken, completely broken, it's no use to put more gas into the car or, or the vehicle. Uh, and what they are doing is exactly that. They just put more gas because they expect the broken engine to magically restart. And there is no magic in history. It will not work. That's uh, our clear-cut analysis. You are publishing on March 24th, on a global scale, an open letter to the leaders of the G20 entitled The G20 Summit, Last Chance Before Global Geopolitical Dislocation, to be published in the Financial Times worldwide and distributed on the Internet in 10 different languages. This is your team's attempt to divert the system from the long and tragic crisis option, which I want to talk about at some length. Europe 2020 has three strategic recommendations, it says in your open letter. The first one being the key to solving the crisis lies in creating a new international reserve currency. Now, why is that so, and what would this new currency look like? Well, um, I think that for an American audience, it's very easy to understand. Any U.S. citizen who has uh, good knowledge uh, of history knows that uh, the way the U.S. established a very dominant position worldwide after 1945 is directly linked with Bretton Woods' argument and the fact that the dollar was put at the core of the international monetary system of that time and became the international reserve currency. I think that this is obvious for any American who knows a bit about history and, 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 and economy and, 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 and geopolitics. Uh, so because of this, it shows the importance of what is the international reserve currency in order to shape up a full-fledged international monetary system. We are coming to, uh, we are in fact into an era, a time, where uh, this international uh, monetary system, the one built after 1945, based upon the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy, doesn't work anymore. Uh, just look at the last week's with the dollar going up and down by almost 10% sometime in one day against all the other uh, major uh, world currencies. This is a, a kind of uh, chaotic move which has been going on for now many years and which has been accelerating in the past uh, two or three years, which makes that uh, the system is not anymore a system. It's a complete chaotic process. And you cannot run a stable planet. You cannot envisage stable relationship between major countries in the world with a complete chaotic process defining the, the currencies and the way they interact together. So the economical sphere, the financial sphere, but also the strategic sphere, uh, look, the question of relationship between uh, China, the, the U.S., uh, and so on, make that if we don't fix as fast as possible in a matter of months or by the end of this year for sure, uh, this monetary system, by building a new one, 
which will enable the major stakeholders which have emerged in the past 10, 15, 20 years worldwide, together with the U.S., to set up a new currency, international reserve currency, to take the place of the U.S. dollar, and we give it a name, the global kind of basket of currencies from, from the major countries, uh, major economies in the world, and run by kind of agency, world agency, which uh, will represent these countries uh, with a, a kind of uh, appropriate balance of, uh, of shares in, inside this agency, then we are absolutely condemned worldwide to move towards a more and more chaotic and unpredictable uh, monetary system and therefore uh, international system in general. So that's why we advocate uh, and we are going to to push on, on uh, March 24th through this Financial Times ad and an open letter to the G20 leaders and, and, and through the Internet. It has cost a lot, a lot to us. We are, we are an association and a non-profit structure, so I can tell you, uh, to buy a worldwide page in the EFT has been a huge effort for us financially. But we think it's worth because we are at a time where we can't lose any more, any occasion, if we can, uh, we can help to get the leaders make the right choices. Because as said before, if we fail to do that collectively, uh, worldwide, not only the leaders, but those who can influence them, then the planet is really going to go into a very, very bad course for the next decade. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchery, Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, The World at Crossroads. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So this uh, open letter to the G20 will be published in the Financial Times this coming week on March 24th, which is approximately, what, one week before the April 2nd yes. uh, G20 meeting in London. Uh, now, you've just described the first of your three strategic recommendations, and that's the creation of a new international reserve currency. Secondly, you're advocating setting up bank control schemes as soon as possible. What would this entail, and why is it so necessary? Well, it's, it's necessary because we, we all know that the, the mess started with the banks. And that at this stage, almost two years after it obviously, uh, the crisis, the financial crisis started to, to blow uh, in the open. Uh, we still know that nobody knows what exactly is going on within the major world banks, uh, banks in the world. And uh, so, uh, and in the banking international system, financial system. So we need to have a regularity framework very fast. Again, it's a question of months, not a question of years and so on, which allows the International Monetary, Monetary Fund to check out all the major banks without any consideration of where they are located. So whether they are uh, in the uh, tax havens in the Caribbean uh, islands or in Monaco or, or in Liechtenstein or in Jersey or Guernsey or, or, or in Singapore or anywhere else, there is a need for an international control of what these banks are doing exactly and what are the situations. Meanwhile, for all the banks which are in a situation of, uh, in fact, collapse or, or almost going to collapse in the coming months, if they should be nationalized, so be it. Because at least by nationalizing them, the government will be able to have a clear understanding of the situation and a, and a capacity to act immediately, preemptively, 
in order to make the best out of the public money they are giving to them. And not, when I say acting preventively, for instance, is not acting like uh, in many countries, like in the U.S. today, trying to run after the bonuses and uh, extra gifts that the executives of these banks are giving themselves, even when they are begging for money, for public money, uh, every, every month. So that's, that's essential as a complementary thing to the major number one proposal I was referring to. And the third one is exactly along the same line, but more, more precise. We say there are three financial places which are the three core pillars of, of the financial system at this stage, Wall Street, the city in London, and Switzerland. By summer, the IMF should be able to give back to the G20 leaders a complete assessment, a thorough assessment of what exactly is going on in these three financial places. Because right now, nobody knows. At least nobody outside the, the, the very small cycles of leaders uh, in each of these three countries. And I'm not even sure that the leaders, political leaders know exactly what's going on in their own uh, financial centers. Well, yes, that's right. Uh, as you've pointed out, your third strategic recommendation is to get the International Monetary Fund to assess the United States, United Kingdom, and Swiss financial systems. According to the research of your group, the three countries located at the center of the financial crisis are the United States, the United Kingdom, and Switzerland. Explain how this is and why you recommend that the International Monetary Fund present an independent assessment of these three systems. I guess you say they're opaque and they're at the center of the crisis and we don't know what's going on with them? Yeah, exactly. Opaque is even, uh, is even still clear, I think, that's what they are. Uh, nobody knows. I mean, there is not an international independent clue, expertise, knowledge about what exactly uh, is the situation of the major financial institutions in each of these three places. And these three places are the major hubs of the financial system uh, in the world. So there is no way that any G20 or international uh, leaders gathering can take any right, proper decision, relevant decision, if they cannot know what is exactly the situation in the three main uh, places where their action should have an impact if they want to really restore some, some stability, some confidence, some uh, efficiency in the financial system globally. Right, and these countries, these three countries, are located at the center of the financial crisis. Yeah, absolutely. They, they have been the hubs through which everything has happened. They are the major banks which are either already collapsed or are on the edge of collapsing, or nobody knows if they will collapse or not, and so on. Uh, the Swiss banks, uh, the British ones, uh, the U.S. ones. Uh, they are the main provider creators of all those derivative products which, have been, which are at the core of the financial uh, crisis and the fact that nobody believes anymore any balance of any bank or financial institution worldwide. Uh, so they are the first three main suspects on the list of who should be looked at uh, in order to improve uh, the situation. Then your uh, fourth and final recommendation to the G20 as they meet in the beginning of April is to write a simple and short statement to the public. What, in your view, should this statement say? Well, basically, if they sent to us, which I hope, but I'm not necessarily optimistic about that uh, for uh, April, is that, but there are more weeks uh, afterwards uh, running to, to summer, is that they take 
at least our, our recommendation, our free recommendation. And if I was to be very honest, I think the most important one, if there was one to keep, is the first one. Because everybody, every single human being on this planet is aware of what is a currency. And therefore, it's a very easy way to show that practically, technically, the leaders are talking about something which is not complex financial uh, operations, products that almost nobody understands what they are about. Uh, that they don't speak about regulations which are so complex to explain that nobody knows, besides the experts, what they are going to do. Uh, 90% of the world population doesn't have any idea what is a tax haven and, and even and never thought of using it because they don't have the money for doing that. But when you start talking about a new reserve currency that will help defining the value of things, of uh, the price of energy, the price of raw materials, the price of agricultural products and so on, with something which is a common currency built up by the main economic uh, powers in the world, you are talking a language which is easily understood by a vast majority of people on this planet. And the question of the confidence, we think, is at the core of the crisis right now and will be more and more the major component of the coming months uh, of this crisis. So if they want to restore confidence, even if they have the brightest idea in the world, if they can't make it simple and understood by the vast majority of people, it will be a failure. So... In terms of content, we do believe that our first recommendation is definitely the one which should be among the, the very few they should recommend. But in general, what they, they should do is to keep it to a very short list of two, three, one recommendations and to say it in a very simple way. And, of course, your first recommendation, just to reiterate, was a new international reserve currency, a basket to replace the uh, the dollar. Yes. Uh, and, of course, I guess you talk about how the, um, all of the national currencies would remain and the main ones would make up the basket, but then there would be this, uh, like you just made a, a name for it, the global, let's say, yeah. and that would sit on top of the basket, and this would be what? Some kind of a virtual currency that would uh, represent the other major currencies but sort of exist in a, in a virtual world? Absolutely. It's not aimed to be like the euro, for instance. There is no way it should be something with coins and banknotes that people will use in the world. Absolutely not. National currencies will stay. The U.S. dollar will stay. We are not in the Amero uh, story uh, here. We are not uh, saying that there should be uh, something else than the dollar to be used in the U.S. What we are saying is that uh, we need something which will be kind of virtual electronic currency, which is essentially will be used in between governments and big institutions, big banks, uh, big multinationals, uh, and so on, for that transaction. And second, which will be uh, a currency which will serve as a reference currency to value the prices of energy, raw materials, and maybe some of the major agricultural products in the world, in order to give a much more stable and reliable uh, pricing to all these different uh, key components of uh, global trade and global economy. Uh, if I may add something, I do believe strongly that this is maybe the best thing which could happen to the American people. Because those who are benefiting from the U.S. dollar as the international reserve currency, at least in the past decades, are not the 90% or 95% of U.S. citizens. They are only a small group of people the very same ones 
which have put your country into the mess into which it is right now by playing completely crazy games in Wall Street and with the public money and public deficits and so on and so on. As soon as there will be such a currency, the dollar will just be one among the major others. It will be obliging the U.S. economy to price things at their real price, like the rest of the world is doing uh, forever. And it will therefore oblige the allocation of money, of funds, of wealth in this country to be directed toward things which have really a value shared by the other countries as well in the world. Right now, it's not the case. It is why the bubbles are following bubble after bubble for now more than a decade in your country. And I think it's one of the best cures against the bubble economy, which has been the plague of the U.S. economy for the past 10, 15 years. Quite the contrary of what is being done right now uh, by your government. Well, that's interesting. So you see that uh, if the dollar were not used as a global reserve currency, that ultimately it would really benefit Americans. Absolutely. Uh, for instance, I'm often asked, uh, since we started floating this idea many months ago, that if I was thinking the euro should take the place of the dollar as international currency. And, and I say always no, because it's, 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 uh, it's um, how it's that in English? Uh, it's a curse. To be the international reference currency is a curse, in fact. On short term, it looks great. You just have to print the money you use to pay the, your bills. And the others have to accept it. But on the long term, and we see it now, it's a curse because it cuts the link with the real world. And therefore, decade after decade, it makes that the country whose currency is international reserve currency starts living in a world which doesn't exist, like in a fairy tale. But fairy tales uh, or dreams have one uh, very uh, close uh, brother or sister. It's called nightmare. And the U.S. today, after 20 or 30 years of a dream situation, uh, is now coming to a nightmare because this international reserve currency status makes that the economy of the country, and therefore the, the, the society itself, has lost contact, lost touch with reality. And economically speaking, this is the disaster we are, we are seeing in, since the past, uh, the past two years. Right, and I guess the U.S. position, having their dollar used as the reserve currency, has... Uh, been too tempting to take advantage of the situation. And then, of course, we have all of this fraud that has happened. Exactly. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchery, Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, The World at Crossroads. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You publish in your bulletin opinion surveys, and it looks like most people and leaders, I guess in Europe at least, expect nothing new to come out of the G20 meeting in spite of, you know, this incredible proactive approach that you've taken. And, and you agree, isn't that right? Well, yes, we do agree. We, uh, as there is a saying in French, but I'm sure it exists in other languages as well, there is no need to hope to make an endeavor. Uh, if you think it's very important to do. I will nevertheless uh, explain that our pessimism for this G20 meeting is not necessarily so big for the follow-up, because we, we do believe indeed that this G20 meeting is made and, and, and is going to take place in a situation where they are not yet ready to put on the table the main question of the uh, international monetary system, which you know, is a precondition to anything else. 
But as we think, the situation will just worsen very fast after the G20. Right now, we are in a, in a situation for, let's say, the last two weeks before the, the summit of everybody trying to make things look good and nice and so that everybody can come to the meeting in a, in a strong position. But just after the meeting, the real reality will come back to where it just stopped being reported uh, two weeks ago. And uh, this pressure, I think, will make that uh, maybe the agenda will be changed in a matter of weeks after the G20. So that maybe this question of, uh, of uh, international monetary system will come very fast on the agenda after the summit. But uh, one of the reasons why the Europeans are also thinking it will not do anything and nothing will, special will come out of uh, the London summit is because the Europeans are, in a way, extremely responsible if nothing happens there. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese, since in the past days, bec are becoming extremely aware about the question of the international currency problem, uh, the dollar, and the need for something new. Just in the, in the last uh, 10 days, uh, Russian, the Russian proposal, the Chinese article in the, in, the, in the official press and so on have been clearly pushing this question on the front. You anticipate that if the G20 proves to be incapable of changing the rules of international finance, then the persistence of today's instability in currency markets, unpredictable moves of commodity prices, dangers on financial markets, social crisis, etc., will drive each prominent country to do what Stalin's USSR did in 1949, that is, become a closed system unto itself. Now, is that what you see, the rise of protectionism, if this is not dealt with, and countries turning inward? Yes. Yes, countries, and, and I think more than countries, regions. Uh, the EU in itself is already a region, and uh, we, we are already seeing that, that process. Uh, just if, if one example, uh, the existing and growing rift between the, uh, the EU and, uh, and the U.S. about what to do about the crisis, where we are seeing, obviously, two different visions of what should be done to, to deal with it. Uh, and that's only the start, because we are far from being in a situation we are going to be in, in a few months' time. But we also see the EU is getting closer to Russia for, for economic, energetic reasons and so on, uh, looking more and more at the Mediterranean countries on the Arab world uh, to try to, to use them more as a basis for production rather than going uh, very far away in China or Asia and so on. Asia will have the same trend. We see that uh, Taiwan is getting closer and closer to China, mainland China, that Japan is now uh, stuck between uh, uh, a U.S. market which doesn't deliver any more exports and the Chinese one, which may be the only chance for Japanese economy and industry to, to survive. Uh, ASEAN countries, which have no way but to follow whatever will be done if something is done with China, Korea, and Japan together. So we, we definitely are seeing with the new project for the Chinese, the, the Asian region, pushed by China and Japan to have a, a kind of a Asian common market by 2015. So this is on the agenda. Uh, we know Latin America is currently at this stage very fast trying to get something of its own organized in the South American context, not connected with the U.S., uh, we know that the U.S. will have a trend, and already has a trend, to, to try to keep jobs or to re rebuild jobs in the U.S. rather than exporting them in other countries. Uh, so all in all, uh, it really looks like uh, 
the picture is already uh, taking form, taking shape uh, in front of our eyes. And if by summer the trends are getting more and more negative, as we think, at one point leaders will have no choice. They will have their populations uh, pushing more and more for results. They will have a growing number of industries in their own country pushing in the same direction. So at one point they will say, well, uh, solutions are in our backyard and they are not anymore global. So then if this international crisis has not begun to be dealt with uh, radically, let's say, in the next six months, your researchers have come up with a phase five of the global systemic crisis, the phase of global geopolitical dislocation, and that this new stage of the crisis will be shaped by two major processes happening in two parallel sequences – Uh, First of all, the disappearance of the financial base, that's the dollar and debt over the whole world, and secondly, a fragmentation of the interests of the global system's big players and blocks. Now, uh, first of all, let's talk about what you mean by geopolitical dislocation. For instance, the bulletin foresees a general loss of confidence in paper money altogether as well as the very real undermining of countries' territorial integrity and ensuing regional chaos. Um, Could you describe how this could look? You even include a new map of North America divided into nine different nations uh, with the majority territory as an empty quarter. I mean, this is a very shocking uh, what could possibly happen, let's say, in the next 10 to 15 years. So what about geopolitical dislocation? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, just about the map. This map is not new. It was uh, made by some uh, geopoliticians uh, in 19, 1981, if I'm not wrong. It was called the Nine Nations of North America, because Canada is also concerned by this, uh, and Mexico, by this reorganization of uh, the North American territory, uh, when uh, a crisis uh, will occur, uh, as they were having in mind at that time. So it's not a new vision. It's uh, just uh, an image we have been taking for giving a, a visual to the ideas we were uh, explaining. Well, first, uh, you should know that uh, as Europeans, and, and, and our, our analysis, our anticipations are coming from a European perspective at the core of it, uh, we know by history that nothing is uh, eternal. Uh, nothing lasts forever, and especially not uh, countries' borders and the co- country's structures. Uh, this idea may be sometimes strange in, in places like the U.S., where people tend to think that tomorrow will be uh, like yesterday but better, uh, or in the same way, at least in the framework of the country, the state, and so on. But uh, what we've learned on this part of the uh, Atlantic Ocean, and I think in most parts of the world, is that borders are not something which lasts more than a few decades uh, generally, and uh, then something happens. What we are saying by that, uh, with this geopolitical fragmentation, which is not only uh, about the U.S., it's about all the major, the biggest political structures, U.S., Russia, China, the EU itself, is that uh, the crisis is already eating these big political entities in a very uh, diverse way. I mean by that, uh, if we take the U.S., that California is not affected in the same way as Montana, which is not affected in the same way as Texas, which is not affected in the same way as New York or or Massachusetts and, and so on. I think that's 
pretty obvious to uh, anybody living in, in uh, these states. And the problem, especially in, in the case of political entities, which are extremely pyramidal, we think they are the weakest ones, in fact, in, in such a crisis. So we are obliged, which are obliged to, to set up one, uh, one kind, only one kind of a policy answer for problems uh, in each field. They are obliged to design something which should be applied the same way from Boston to San Francisco, in the case of the U.S., or from Vladivostok to uh, Moscow, if it was uh, Russia. And uh, we think that this crisis, the forms it is taking, is, is a process which cannot be efficiently dealt for these big, very large entities if it's only one size fits all policies which are applied. Therefore, these policies are going to add to the crisis itself, to the already existing economic, financial, uh, social stress of, of populations, by making parts of the country being very upset because they will feel that they are treated in not uh, a fair way compared to others. And that basically is a key component of what fuels very fast. So it's there to prove that everywhere. You can have a very fast process of social unrest, political unrest, uh, violence, because people just feel that this is not fair. They feel that their money is used by others in the wrong way, that they don't get what they deserve when the others get what they deserve and so on, or what they don't deserve and so on. And uh, the U.S., like the other country or political entities I was mentioning, uh, is a, has a characteristic to, to get into this uh, social political unrest uh, in the coming years. Right, and I think the bulletin even uh, points out that uh, California is what the ninth largest economy in the world, yeah, and that uh, Calif- here in California we're in uh, terrible financial trouble. And if this fragmentation uh, scenario were to take place uh, in the future, like within the next ten years, uh, it's possible that, for instance, perhaps California might refuse to pass on taxes to the federal of government. Of course. And we have today a situation where some counties in California have been threatening uh, the state of California not to make the tax go up if they could not get the money they were expecting from the state of California, which has suppressed, uh, I don't remember, many billions of dollars of uh, public funding because they, they can't get it from, uh, because of the crisis. So, I mean, these are the things which at this stage are already popping up in several parts, not only in California, of the, of the country. And there will be more and more of them. And at one point, the political fabric of the country starts to be directly affected when the tax system starts to be put in question by part of its uh, components, when money flows up but never comes down or when money flows in one part of the the country but doesn't flow in the other part and people are not happy with that, and so on. I'm speaking with Frank Bianchery, Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Today's show, The World at Crossroads. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, if, if we take other examples also uh, about that, what we see with the Mexican border, there is another element there, which is a growing erosion of the border under, for instance, the threat or the, uh, the effect 
of this, uh, the, the almost collapsing of the Mexican state, which is now completely unable to control part of its uh, northern border where the drug cartels are doing what they want. And what they want is also uh, partly done more and more on the U.S. side, which makes that the U.S. border is being taken in the middle of a kind of drug cartel expansion uh, from Mexico. Uh, These are elements which, when you look at them like a picture taken at one point, you say, well, that's nothing. But when you add them in a dynamic process and you put them together in the movie, then you get a movie which is going in the direction we are seeing. Yes, and also uh, I've seen many articles, and it's also mentioned in your uh, bulletin, that in terms of the United States itself, with the federal government perhaps losing control, that the population here in the United States is very heavily armed, unlike in most other countries, and things could become quite dangerous. Of course it is. Uh, we, we have looked at the uh, crisis risk by countries, and clearly one of the main, one of the important element factor of, uh, of dislocation, uh, political, social dislocation in one country, is the number of citizens which are, be- we are having uh, weapons. Because uh, it's, it's, it's one thing to have, uh, to have your neighbor uh, having no job and maybe one day uh, no food and having uh, only a knife or a fork. Uh, while you, you have still some food and, and everything. And uh, if in another situation the same neighbor has a Kalashnikov or whatever uh, automatic weapons, then you are in a very different situation. And, and, and there are, uh, if I'm not wrong, about 200 million uh, individual uh, armed weapons in, in circulation in the U.S., which makes it the most uh, armed country uh, for individuals. That is not a detail. Uh, in a context of social disruption, of, of, of political uh, disruption, this is the major factor of threat for individuals. Well, I guess so. If you say that there's 200 million uh, armaments in circulation, there's only, what, 300 million people in the whole country, right? Yeah, but I suppose some of them have a lot of them. <laughs> well, I guess that's true. I don't have one. Yeah. <laughs> But if another element I wanted to add for uh, the California example, which is uh, also a way to, to look at it from outside. For instance, uh, since the past, uh, since early February, uh, California state uh, civil servants are asked to stay at home two days, I think, by week or one day by week. Imagine the same news coming from Germany, because Germany is the largest state of the European Union. So it can be compared uh, as California is the most populous and and, uh, uh, richest uh, state in the U.S. Imagine the same news from Germany. It would have made the the, the top news, the headlines of all the world newspapers. German civil servants are asked to stay at home two days or one day by week because the government cannot pay them anymore. And in California, this is happening. But... In the context of coverage, which is not taking very much attention or paying attention to that kind of element, it is absolutely not put in a front-page position in most media. I don't say it should be, but I say if it would have been a country like Germany in Europe or, I don't know, Japan or whatever, it would have immediately made the headlines. Because people would have said, this is very serious. This is, this is a state which is, which is starting to, to, to have difficulties to exist. Because the state is nothing without the bureaucrats. And if the bureaucrats are asked to stay at home, 
then it means the state is really in its capacity to, to run things, to, to, to control things, to, to make things. When we last spoke, you said that I think the most important thing that uh, President Obama was going to need to do in order to deal with the financial crisis was to cut the military budget. But now his new budget proposal is out, and not only is he not cutting the military budget, but he's increasing it by 4%. So do you see this as very dangerous? Yes, if 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 it stays like this, I think it's extremely dangerous because for two reasons. First, it's impossible, and, and we, we discussed about that last time, it's impossible that your country can get rid of its huge public deficits without addressing head-on the uh, defense budget and to reduce it significantly. And uh, second, because the crisis will oblige, anyhow, big cuts in the defense budget. But if it's done uh, brutally, uh, without any public debate, without real uh, a kind of political wide support about where and how and so on, it will trigger a very, very bad and negative feeling among, among the uh, defense uh, and industrial military complex and the defense uh, community, which, which is always a very dangerous component in the situation of crisis in a country. So I think if it, it's dangerous for these, these two reasons. But... Maybe, uh, maybe some news will come in the, in the coming months because uh, uh, the lack of funds, may, public funds, may, are going to be felt soon in many in many parts of the uh, of the of the budget. And I know that, for instance, uh, Robert Gates is not coming to the uh, NATO summit of Strasbourg. Uh, maybe because there are some very important uh, budget choices in the Pentagon to be made these these very weeks. And we can maybe look with very big interest what will come out in, uh, in a matter of uh, two, three, four weeks. I hope so. Right. And, and in your bulletin, you point out in the long run, if these problems aren't taken care of quickly or a new system isn't come up with, that in this financial crisis, ultimately the United States is going to have to bring soldiers back from many of these uh, uh, global uh, bases and bring them back home because there's not going to be any money to keep them there. Yes, absolutely. That, that's... Uh, you know, the comparison we've made with, uh, though it's not exactly the same thing, but, but some comparison can be made with the situation of USSR in 1989. One of the consequences of the economic crisis of USSR was that they could not afford anymore their military uh, apparatus. External bases, number of soldiers, uh, new uh, weapons programs, and so on and so on. And that's the that's rule of... Uh, of, of reality. I mean, there is no way to escape these kind of, of consequences. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit just before we end about the fact that the United States government is having trouble selling treasury bonds. Now, do you suspect that the Fed, the Federal Reserve here, is secretly buying T-bills. I think they're even coming out publicly and saying now that they're buying them. But do you believe, does your research indicate that they've been buying up these treasury bills all along and not being public about it? Yes. Since we we made the the, the first uh, issue of GIB in February 2006 about the crisis, we were and we have been since 2006 uh, arguing and, and presenting elements in our issues that, in fact, already at this time, the, the Fed was doing that, maybe not directly, mostly through its primary dealers, the, the big banks, which are its, its dealers, well, it says it all, uh, of treasury bonds. So it was, it was hidden from the public, 
Uh, and at that time, it could be hidden because of two reasons. Nobody was, in fact, having any reason to ask the question. And secondly, the amounts involved were <clears throat> much lower than, 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 than what they are today. And as you say, they have said a few days ago last week that they will uh, spend hundreds of billions to buy uh, T-bonds, and I think it's, uh, it's, it will be in, mo in much bigger quantities than hundreds of billions. We are, we are going soon to talk about uh, uh, trillions, in fact, uh, involved in that, uh, that buyout of T-bonds. This is, last week, it was about 10% devaluation of the dollar. And in fact, it's exactly what the dollar did against uh, all the major currencies. So what we expect in the coming months is that if we record quarter or so, uh, the Fed will announce that they are going to put even more money to buy more T-bonds, and the dollar will go uh, once more 10% uh, down, and, and, and so on and so on. And, uh, of course, when the Chinese claim that they will not change their position by buying T-bonds today, just and, and one week before the G20, just when they have for one week, they've been issuing uh, official statements, articles in China, in Chinese official papers and so on about the country, that they were concerned, that they were afraid of the value of their investment in T-bonds and so on. I think that we, we know that uh, all the major T-bond holders right now in the world are just trying to find a way out. And, and of course, they can't go out because that will make the whole game collapse, but they are all having only one thing in mind, how to get rid of them without making the market collapse. And the Fed, well, last week, has given them a big reason just to think even more about it. You mean because of the trillion that they're uh, yeah. now printing? Yeah. Right. It is now something, the Bank of England just did it one month ago, I mean, it's, it's, it's like uh, you are printing the own money where you sell yourself things and you buy them with the money you've been printing in your, uh, in your backyard. I mean, this is just debasing your, your currency. Uh, they can call it quantitative easing. They can call it a very bad move. They can call it a bold move that, I will say, like Grugman didn't say that about this issue, but could have said, like, the Europeans don't do, or the Chinese don't do, whatever. But, I mean, it's not bold, it's not whatever. This is just panic. They do it because they cannot do anything else. Frank Bianchi, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, well, I just think that we are all in, in, in a boat, which is, uh, I hope, uh, we'll, we'll find a new course between now and summer, because there is a very big possibility, and the chance, in fact, is not so difficult. All the technicalities of creating a new uh, international reserve currency. Uh, are there. The IMF and the big central banks, they all have the experts and the know-how and the knowledge to put that on in a matter of six months to one year, maximum. So in fact, it's just a question of political will. And I do hope for all of us that our leaders are going to find this will somewhere somehow between now and summer, because if they can do it, we are really going to push after three, four, five years of a bumpy road, the world in a real stable long-term uh, uh, period of time, maybe like we had in the past, 30, 40, at least one or two generations of stability. If not, I'm really afraid that by summer we're going to get into a very frightening decade. And I definitely hope, and we are doing everything we can with Leap 2020 with our modest means to try to, uh, to get that the first option is chosen and not the second one. Frank Bianchi, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bonnie.
I've been speaking with Frank Bianchari. Today's show has been The World at Crossroads. Frank Bianchari is Director of Research and Coordinator of the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. Each month, the bulletin brings its unique analysis of the upcoming stages of the collapse of the world order created after 1945, as well as numerous strategic recommendations for decisions in the political, economic, and financial fields. Visit the bulletin's website at www.leap2020.eu. That's L-E-A-P the numbers 2020.eu. Mr. Bianchari is also Director of Research at Leap Europe 2020, the European Laboratory of Political Anticipation, and President of Neuropeans, the first trans-European political movement. Europe 2020 is dedicated to anticipating European political developments and was developed in partnership with many different organizations, including research centers and individual researchers. The Europe 2020 website provides support to innovative initiatives aimed at upgrading the European Union's capacity to face 21st century challenges. Visit their website at www.europe2020.org. That's Europe, the numbers 2020.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Release. You dig me?